Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're taking our Bibles this morning and turning, please, to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. If you're just joining us today, we've been journeying through John so that you might believe. After all, John writes with that very purpose in John 20 and verse 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. We open this morning to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, and we begin our reading in the 12th verse. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus, out of the grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. That's our theme this morning. The world is gone after him. I trust we'll discover why As we open the pages of God's Word this morning, let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word today. Father, I pray that you use the message this morning to strengthen our faith, that we might be found ready for the coming of Christ, rejoicing and serving the Savior. And Lord, I pray for anyone who may have come into this room today who as yet has never trusted Christ as Savior. May today be the day of salvation for someone who sees the Lord high and lifted up, May that be our desire, our joy, our purpose today, that Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up, that we love Him more as we see Him in the Word. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Back in 1878, William Cushing wrote the hymn, Follow On. He wrote it for children. Do you know the song? It says, down in the valley with my Savior I would go, where the flowers are blooming, and the sweet waters flow. Everywhere he leads me, I will follow, follow on, walking in his footsteps till the crown be won. You know, it's easy to follow the Lord when the flowers are blooming. It's a little bit more difficult to follow the Lord when there is no bloom in the flowers and we face the deserts. That's why Cushing wrote these words, down in the valley with my Savior I would go, Where the storms are sweeping and the dark waters flow, with his hand to lead me, I will never, never fear. Dangers cannot fright me if my Lord is near. As we open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 12, the Pharisees make an interesting observation in the 19th verse when they say, the whole world has gone after Jesus. The crowd that is closing in around him They're celebrating the triumphal entry of the Lord in triumphal procession, crying out aloud, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Sadly, that same crowd we know will shortly after this cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And so it is that many who follow the Lord when the flowers are blooming find it ever so difficult to follow the Lord when the storms are sweeping. After all, we've opened our Bibles to John 12. We should have no doubt that Judas, with a mind that was already filled with greed and a plot to betray the Lord, was now in this crowd at the triumphal entry, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Peter is in the crowd. And shortly after this, Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. The Bible is filled with examples of those who have, for a time, seemed to faithfully follow the Lord, and then sadly, they have fallen away. We read of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. We read in Acts chapter 8 of Simon the sorcerer. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 of Demas forsaking the ministry that he had shared with the Apostle Paul. There are many who fall away from the Lord. Some fall away from the Lord because they're dealing with doubt. Some fall away from the Lord because they're distracted by difficulties. Some fall away from the Lord because they're deceived by sin. And it's sad to discover that some who shout the loudest, Hosanna, and stand the closest to the Savior, end up themselves turning away. So many have turned away from following the Lord in recent years that a new term has been coined to describe their journey. They're calling themselves Christian deconstructionist. Christian deconstruction, we would have called it in the old days, backsliding or apostatizing. But celebrity Christians like Josh Harris, who wrote, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Celebrity Christians like Abraham Piper, the son of well-known minister John Piper. Celebrity Christians like Kevin Max, who was part of the Christian rap group, DC Talk, and so many others have fallen away that a new term has come to describe their journey. And so many young people have fallen away that Ken Ham and two fellow authors put together a book entitled Already Gone, detailing and seeking to analyze why so many in the younger generations are turning away from the faith of their fathers. And in the book, suggestions are given by which people are striving to save those who would fall away from the faith and keep them following after. There are those who are asking today, why are so many falling away? Well, John writes that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he writes so that believing we can have life, jubilant, purposeful, eternally destined life in his name. John writes because he wants us to faithfully follow the Savior. We've opened our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 12. And as we open our Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12, It's interesting to see that Jesus Christ is coming into Jerusalem, and He's coming very purposefully, and He's coming very publicly. During these first three years of His ministry, the Lord has been rather private. 
especially when the crowds want to pronounce him king. For nearly three years, Jesus has sought to silence those who would declare him to be the king, who would bring undue attention to him and the position that he will one day hold as he would sit upon the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. In John chapter 2, Mary, his own mother, comes to him, telling him about a circumstance there at the wedding of Cana. They have no wine. Jesus, seeking to avoid the spotlight, says to his mother, woman, my time has not yet come. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Having fed the 5,000, they want to make him king. (laughs) And Jesus slips quietly away from them, avoiding the spotlight and avoiding their demands. In John chapter 7, Jesus' own brothers point him to the feast, and he says to them, my time has not yet come. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and we realize that in raising Lazarus from the dead, there's a great deal of attention that's now given to Jesus. And in verse 54 of John chapter 11, the Bible says, he walked no more openly among the Jews. But when we come to John chapter 12, everything changes. Instead of pulling away from the spotlight, Jesus himself is preparing the spotlight, stepping onto the center stage as he comes in triumphal procession into the city of Jerusalem. Why? Why this change? Well, he's coming to fulfill the purpose of his earthly ministry. He's coming knowing that his activities at this moment will ultimately strengthen the faith of his disciples, the faith of these apostles who will give their lives for him, and our faith this morning, the faith of those who have gathered here. Look at verse 16 of our text this morning. In John 12 and verse 16, the Bible says, these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. At the time of the triumphal entry, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. But after the resurrection, and after the glorification and the ascension of our Savior up into heaven, they came to understand. They came to understand some truths that I want to point out to you in this text. Truths that often are obscure, that require us to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the text to understand them. There are two essential truths that are revealed in John's account of the triumphal entry. Two truths that fortify our faith and help us to stand, help us to, to strengthen our resolve and stay close to the Savior. Follow, follow. I would follow Jesus. Why? Well, as we look at the text this morning, we find in John chapter 12, it seems, that the Old Testament is converging together in this point in time. It's during the triumphal entry that Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah of prophecy. And it's during the triumphal entry that Jesus is showing himself to be the lamb that is provided. Now, our message today is going to require you to put your thinking cap on just a bit. I know that can be difficult for some more than others. But I'm going to ask that you pay careful attention this morning that your spirit would be blessed. You see, there are many who fail to follow the Lord because they're lacking a spiritual buzz. They're missing a spiritual emotion. They fail to understand that three men went walking along a wall, feeling, faith, and fact. 
Feeling took an awful fall. Faith was taken back. So close was faith to feeling that faith almost fell there too, but fact remained and pulled faith back. And faith brought feeling too. Our belief in Jesus Christ will often bring to us great spiritual joy, great spiritual euphoria, wonderful feelings of bliss. But those feelings need to be based on fact. And this morning as we open our Bibles to John chapter 12, we're going to explore some facts very carefully that ultimately should cause our faith to be grounded even when feelings fall. I want us to notice in this text this morning that as Jesus comes on that day, we see Jesus is the Messiah prophesied. He's the Messiah prophesied. I want you to see how careful John is as he records the events of the Passion Week. The first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John are about the Lord's first three years of ministry. Then beginning in chapter 12, the last 10 chapters of the Gospel of John are all about one week, the last week of our Lord's life. And John chapter 12 and verse 1 begins this way, six days before the Passover, John is pinpointing with precision this particular time in the life of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord. He wants us to know as much as we can about the last week of the Lord's earthly ministry. And you recall that when Jesus comes to Bethany in John chapter 12 and verse 1, he's left a place of obscurity. He's come now to Bethany. He no longer, chapter 11 and verse 54 says, he no longer walked in Jewry. He had exited from the crowds. But now, six days before the Passover, he comes to Bethany, just two miles outside of the gates of Jerusalem. He has friends in Bethany after all, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. The Bible tells us that as he had come there into that place, something special was about to happen. He was invited into the home of Simon, a man who had once been a leper. And there in the home of Simon, a dinner is given in the honor of Jesus and in honor of Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. And something very special happened at that dinner. You remember what happened? Remember how Mary comes to the Lord? Chapter 12 and verse 3 tells us that Mary came to the Lord and she poured out about 12 ounces of spikenard, a perfume, an ointment, onto the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was very costly perfume. In fact, it cost about $26,000 in today's terms. She poured $26,000 of perfume on top of the Lord. Do you know what the word Messiah means? Messiah is a Hebrew word, Mashiach. Mashiach means to anoint or the anointed one. Our word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. Christos, much like Mashiach, means anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three positions or three offices into which people entered with anointing. If a person entered into the office of king, they were anointed. David, you recall, was anointed by Samuel. If they entered into the office of high priest, they were anointed. If they entered into the office of prophet, they were anointed. And so it was that Mary came behind the Lord and she anointed him. And the ointment that fell down off of his hair flowed on the ground, and with her hair, she wiped his feet in that anointing. Now we've come to John chapter 12, and we read in verse 
12, on the next day, much of the people were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And you recall the story, how they took palm branches and they called Hosanna. And as Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king is entering into Jerusalem, the scent of that precious ointment was wafting through the air as the Lord Jesus Christ is entering into that place. And it seems that the Old Testament prophecies are converging together in this moment. You see, God had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, kings will come from you, Abraham. And God had specifically said in Genesis chapter 49 through Jacob that the king of promise, that king would come through the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes in Israel, but it was from the tribe of Judah that the king was expected in Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that it would be his son from his family that would be the king. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that this king who was expected and prophesied by now, this king would be obscure. He would grow up as a root out of dry ground. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14 that this king who would come would be born of a virgin. The Bible tells us much about this king. In fact, the Bible tells us that this king's goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. Micah chapter 5 predicts that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. By now, we have the privilege of knowing who the king is. But they did not know. But suddenly they're crying, Hosanna. And as we open our Bibles to John chapter 12, we find several very specific Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled as Jesus enters the city, his capital city, on that day. Notice what John says in verse 14. Little phrase, but don't read by it. John says, as it is written. Then notice what he says again in verse 16. He says, these things are written of him. What's written? What was written of him? He's referring back to the Old Testament. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. He wants his readers, us, to see that the triumphal entry fulfilled specific messianic prophecies. The day that Jesus entered Jerusalem was prophesied, the very day. I was warned in my youth, don't be a scuba diver preacher. What do you mean, don't be a scuba diver preacher? Don't go down deep, stay down long, and come up dry. I'm about to do some scuba diving. So take a deep breath. You ready? The day that Jesus entered Jerusalem was prophesied. We discovered that the triumphal entry was very specifically a fulfillment of a prophecy. A prophecy that was given to Daniel back in Daniel chapter 9. So put a marker here in John chapter 12 and come back with me to the book of Daniel chapter 9. Some of you have explored this prophecy with me in the past. For others, this will be unfamiliar territory. Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy that literally can take our breath away. Whether we be scuba diver preachers or scuba diver parishioners. Daniel chapter 9, John wants us to know exactly when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Remember in John chapter 12, he said six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. 
And in John chapter 12 and verse 12, John said, and the next day he's giving to us the chronology of the king. Why does he want us to know that? He wants us to know that Jesus came to Jerusalem five days before the Passover. That's a monumentally important fact. In fact, it's a day that Daniel spoke of hundreds of years before. Daniel chapter 9 provides a divine calendar. The calendar begins in verse 24. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Look at what it says. Daniel 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Who are Daniel's people? Well, those would be the Jews. And what would the holy city of Daniel be? Well, that would be Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Seventy weeks can more literally be translated seventy-sevens. We have the English word weeks, but the word sevens is probably more appropriate. It's simply designating a unit of seven. Now, God through Daniel says, I have planned seventy-sevens for the Jews and for Jerusalem. Now, notice that the end of verse 24 says, these 77s are for a purpose. What's the purpose? Look at the last words of verse 24. To anoint the most holy. Now, that's clearly messianic. It's clearly speaking about the Messiah, the anointed one of promise. 77s are determined to anoint the most holy. Look at verse 25. We discover when this calendar begins. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going form of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, and so he's laying out for us from the going forth of this command unto Messiah the Prince. And now verse 25 can become a little bit confusing because verse 25 divides this calendar into parts. He says there'll be two sections here. He speaks of seven weeks. Then he speaks of three score and two weeks, or 62 weeks, a score, of course, being 20. So verse 25 is divided into two parts. Know therefore from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there'll be these two parts in the calendar, seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Are you still with me? As we look at this passage, we discover in verse 26 something shocking. In verse 26 we read, after three score and two weeks, Messiah will be cut off, praise the Lord, not for himself, but for us. Now, Jesus' triumphal entry is the specific fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. Since a week represents a unit of seven, we can understand this prophecy by reading it this way. Hopefully it becomes clearer. Seventy-sevens, or 490 years, are determined upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem. Now, the calendar of weeks is going to begin, verse 25 says, from the going forth of the commandment, that's when it starts, until the Messiah the Prince. And so, there are seven weeks, that's 49 years, then there are 62 weeks, that's 434 more years. If you take 49 and 434, 
you have 483. Now, wait a minute. We're still missing a week. But let's focus on what this passage is saying. History, as well as Scripture, specifically in Nehemiah chapter 2, tells us that there was a commandment to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That that commandment was given by a king by the name of Artaxerxes, allowing the Jews to leave Babylon and go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That that commandment was given specifically in the month of Nisan, which was the first month of the calendar year, in 445 B.C. And that's when Daniel's divine calendar began. It took 49 years for the reconstruction of Jerusalem. That left 434 years in the calendar. Jerusalem's been reconstructed, and 434 years later, Jesus, the Messiah, entered Jerusalem exactly 483 years after Artaxerxes commanded that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. Jesus' coming to Jerusalem was so specifically fulfilled that when people heard Jesus' followers saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord, they said, you better silence your crowds. And Jesus responded to them in Luke chapter 19 and verse 40. You remember what he said? I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. That's how significant this particular day was. Jesus knew the significance of this day in his ministry. That's why in John chapter 2, he said to his mother, woman, my time has not yet come. That's why in John chapter 7, he said to his brethren, my time has not yet come. But now as he enters into Jerusalem, 173,880 days after Artaxerxes said, go ahead and restore and rebuild. 173,880 days after that command had been given. 483 years, those are lunar years, 360 days a year. 483 years after the command, to the very day, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. That's why the stones would have cried out. Now, there's only one week left in Daniel's divine calendar. You remember Jesus comes in the 69th week. What's the 70th week? Well, you can read of it there in verse 26. The Bible says there will be a prince who will come. And verse 27 says he'll confirm a covenant with many for one week. He's speaking there, of course, about the tribulation. Seven years of horror under the Antichrist, the prince who will come, who will confirm a covenant with Israel for one week. But our focus today is not on the Antichrist. Our focus today is on the anointed one, the one whose garment smelled of spikenard as he came in through the gates, the eastern gates, into the city on the very day that God had said he would come. Now, what if today I would stand up here and I'd say, on the 1st of August in 2,505, the King of England is going to come to Colonial Hills Baptist Church. You'd say, well, Pastor Phelps, you can say anything you want to. None of us are going to be there to prove it. Okay, now I'm going to put that in a time capsule. Now I'm going to add a detail. I'm going to say August 1st, 2505, the King of England is going to come to Colonial Hills Baptist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, and when he comes, he's going to be assassinated. Close the capsule and put it away. If that prophecy came to be, 
you'd say, that's amazing. It's amazing because Pastor Phelps wasn't here to make everything happen. He doesn't know the king. We don't even know if there will be a king. We don't know if there'll be a Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We don't know if there'll be a nation of England or a United States of America. There are too many variables for us to say that could possibly happen. Why did I use that illustration? Because that's 483 years from now. And when Daniel spoke and said the king is going to come 483 years after a commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Israel, that's how remarkable the prophecy is. We know that Jesus came on the day, and we know the way that Jesus came. Back in John chapter 12, if you will, in John chapter 12, we read in verse 13 that the people took branches of the palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And look at verse 15. He was sitting on an ass's colt. Now, 500 years earlier, Zechariah 9 verse 9 predicted that the king would come, that he would be just having salvation lowly, riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Well, you say, I know the story, Pastor Phelps. Jesus actually had his disciples go get that, that donkey and bring that donkey to him. And I know it was unbroken. He was managing the details there, yes. But the 118th Psalm also says, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And in Psalm 118, in that context that I just read, this is the day that the Lord has made. You know what the next verse says? It says, Hosanna, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Not only was the day predicted, but the way was predicted. How do we know that Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of our worship? We base our faith on the fact of God's Word, facts that only Jesus Christ could, could fill, can fulfill. He is the one who was born to be king from the loins of Abraham. He is the one of the tribe of Judah. He is the one, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, who arises from the family of David. He is the one who was born in Bethlehem. He is the one who came as a root out of dry ground. He is the one and only Savior, the only virgin-born Son of God, and we worship Him this morning based on the facts that are revealed in God's Word. And we ought to say amen to that. So how do I respond when tragedy comes? How do I respond when my soul is overwhelmed? Well, I know that Mark chapter 7 says in verse 7, He does all things well. Don't doubt His purpose. Are you going through a trial? Do you think that God has somehow forgotten you? Are you confused about the purposes of God in your situation? We serve the God who set the stars in their courses so they don't bump into one another. We serve the God who spins the earth on its axis and it never deviates so that we're not burned up and we're not freezing. And Jeremiah chapter 29 says in verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give to you an expected end. Our God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and He rides upon the storm, deep in the unsearchable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up His bright designs. He works His sovereign will and He fearful saints. Fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings upon your head. 
Don't be discouraged when God brings delays. <laughs> there were 400 silent years between Malachi and the coming of Jesus Christ and the announcement of John the Baptist. You should never doubt God's ability to keep his promises. The God who set the clock in the heavens for the coming of Jesus Christ and the triumphal entry set that clock before there were any heavens and before there were any clocks. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4 and verse 4, born of a virgin, born unto men to redeem us. God set the time of the coming of Jesus Christ before there was any time. Because Daniel chapter 4 says in verse 25, our God rules in the kingdoms of men, and he rules in your life as well. When you find yourself discouraged and disappointed by delays, don't forget your God rules. Russell Carter was born in 1849. It seemed he had it all. He went to a military academy. He was very athletic, a precocious student, a musician, became an ordained minister and began to write some songs. He even got a medical degree. Then at the age of 30, he became critically ill with a heart problem that no one seemed to be able to solve. And they told him his life would be shortened. So with new zeal, he dove into God's Word and began to study God's Word seeking to find that peace that only God can bring. And he did find some measure of peace. In fact, he prayed this prayer, Lord, whether you see fit to heal me or not, from now on my life is full of yours. I'm going to stand on your promises. He thought about that a while, and he wrote the song, Standing on the Promises of Christ my Lord. He lived to be 79 years of age. God extended his life. I have news for you, friend. Based on the greatness of the God that we serve, His sovereignty and the wonder of His ability to keep His promises, there's room for you to stand on His promises too. The God who would send Jesus Christ on the very day has in His Word revealed to you all that's necessary for your satisfaction and will along the way, even through disappointments and discouragements and delays, allow His promises to be fulfilled in your life as well. Come back with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, the Pharisees had remarked, the world has gone after him. Why? Because he's the Messiah who was prophesied. But notice with me also quickly this morning. He's the lamb who was provided. He is the lamb who was provided. You see, the same hand that set the divine calendar that's revealed to us in the book of Daniel also had another page in the calendar that he wanted us to consider. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. Now the Passover was always on the 14th of Nisan. Nisan being the first month of the Jewish calendar year. And so as we read in verse 1, we, are, we know that Jesus, it seems, came on the 8th. doesn't seem, it says. Jesus came on the 8th of Nisan to Bethany. We can assume that as Jesus comes to Bethany, he's going to spend the Sabbath there in Bethany, which would have been on the 9th. And then on the 10th, that would be Sunday, Jesus is coming in triumph. We read in verse 12, look at it, John 12 and verse 12, on the next day. So he arrived in Bethany, and then we read on the next day. 
He is coming on that next day to Jerusalem. What's going on in Jerusalem on that day? Take your Bibles and come back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Not only was Jesus coming as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, but in Exodus chapter 12, we discover something even more wonderful is happening. In Exodus chapter 12, we read in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. That month, of course, we know by now is called Nisan. Now verse 3, Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, Nisan, they will take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you will keep it under the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall eat it in the evening. Verse 3 says, the Passover lamb was chosen on the tenth of Nisan. Verse 6 says, <clears throat> the Passover lamb was slain on the 14th of Nisan. What's happening between the 10th and the 14th? The people are required to examine that lamb to make sure that it's a worthy lamb. And so we look at Exodus 12 and verse 7. They shall take the blood and strike that blood of that lamb that was slain on the Passover on the two side posts and up on the upper doorpost. They're forming on the doorpost, you understand, the sign of the cross. We come to verse 12, and God gives a warning. He says, Now I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And a wonderful promise in verse 13, But the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of, of Egypt. Where was Jesus born? We know, right? Where was he born? Bethlehem. Where was Bethlehem? It was five miles outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Remember the shepherds were there in Bethlehem watching over the sheep by night? What did the shepherds watch sheep for in Bethlehem? Well, most of the sheep who grew up on the pastures of Bethlehem, on the hills of Bethlehem, were destined to be given in sacrifice on the altars in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born because God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 that he would provide himself a lamb. He was born because Isaiah chapter 53 gives us this wonderful promise that this particular lamb would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace would be upon him and with his stripes we'd be healed. You see, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, Isaiah 53 says, and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers, and he was dumb. He did not open his mouth. You know how John introduces Jesus in John 1 and verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Do you see now what's happening in John chapter 12? In John chapter 12, it's the 10th of Nisan. It's the day when the city is busy selecting the worthy lamb. And the only worthy lamb, the one who has been in obscurity, 
the one who has said, my time has not yet come. Now, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, is coming in on the very day that was prophesied, and now he's coming to offer himself as the only lamb who can take away the sin of the world. You see, the death of Christ was not some strange tragedy. His death was not an accident. It was an appointment. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 18, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. Jesus offers himself because God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, Numbers 15, 28 says, the soul that sinneth it shall die. But thank God, while we are worthy of death, that God would allow that only worthy lamb to take away our sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God that comes through the sacrifice of the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the children of Israel were observing the Passover. It was the 10th of Nisan. It was the time for selecting the lamb. Soon it would be the time for the slaying of the lamb and the striking of the blood upon the doorpost. But for all who will believe in the one lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sanctifies us by his blood through one offering, Hebrews chapter 10 says, if you'll believe in him that God so loved you, And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We don't look to a doorpost, we look to a cross. And we know that Jesus on this particular day came to offer himself for the sins of the world. What am I learning? Oh, friend, I'm learning that the love of of God is unconditional. That while we were yet sinners, and while the rejectors filled the crowd that cried Hosanna, Soon those rejectors would call, crucify him, and he still came. For he alone is the worthy lamb that can bear the sin of the world. He came fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. I'm learning that his love is unconditional, and I'm learning that his love for us is eternal. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And when I'm tempted to fall away, And when I'm tempted to forsake, I need to think. I need to think that Jesus Christ came as the fulfiller of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And how anemic I am to wander away from the revelation that God has given to make me stand upon the rock. And I need to realize that there's no one ever who has loved me like this. He gave his life for me and for you. He came not to die as an accident, but to die as an appointment, as the only Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Never doubt God's plan and never doubt God's love. Follow, follow. I would follow Jesus anywhere he leads me. I would follow on. Are you dealing with doubt this morning? Would you ask yourself the question, how much have I considered of what the Word of God has revealed. Are you dealing with discouragement this morning? Then thank the Lord for the Lamb who was given for the sins of the world, for your sins and for mine. Friend, if you're unsaved this morning, will you come to trust Jesus Christ who died for your sins and was buried and praise God rose again the third day according to the Scripture. 
This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.